2: this is the starship sofa everybody welcome hello and welcome to show 246 i am your host tony c smith Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I think last week I got my numbers mixed up and calling that one 246. Apologies. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a fantastic story by a new writer called Ryan Jones, and the story is entitled Return to Earth. What a cracking story. Then we have Adam with his cheapskates, and as you've noticed, I don't see Adam's surname. That is, you think that's the today's show, but that is just a Fantastic show! I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So we're going to jump straight into the main fiction, and like I say, if you like science fiction, this this guy's just come around dropped me a story there, and I just went, wow. And I'll tell you where it actually come from. It was actually Bruce Bethke who actually told Ryan to, to come over, because normally, I don't normally take kind of you know, I just really go for stories that have been in magazines already. That's the kind of the format and the remit of Starships so Over. Do you know what I mean? I'll leave that to the kind of professionals. The Sheila Williams is out there. But, Ryan dropped us a note and says, would you have a look at this story? And like I say, I don't know, so don't send any in because I'm undated anyways with the emails. Ryan says, would you have a look at it? You know, Bruce Bethke said, send it over. Now, Bruce, if you we did an interview on the sofa notes, Bruce, Bruce, get get me tongue around that. Bruce is the guy who invented or who... Kind of term cyberpunk, you know. Have a look at listen to that interview over there. You know, what I mean, this guy's got pedigree, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's got like a, a new kind of magazine going there called Stupefying Stories. And this story came from there, and like I say, Ryan just dropped us an email and says, You know, have a little listen to it. Stuck it on me Kindle it and just loved it. And even before. I kind of got to the end, I was kind of wanting, you know, I had a kind of certain array I picked out for that story, and I was just thinking, I'm going to get this up as soon as possible. So I literally have had this, at like, a couple of weeks, and I'm dying to get it, you know, played out there. I'll give you a little heads up about Ryan. Ryan M. Jones is part librarian, part database tech, a path he undertook when he realised his degree in classical Greek. <laughs> what did take that for, man? <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. Do you know what I mean? It's funny. Ryan, I'll get on I'll get to you. Classical Greek. What's that going to do in the real world? I don't mean to be cheeky, Ryan. Because my daughter's now just at that age where she's kind of left school, comprehensive school, and, you know, we're kind of trying to get her into the big, wide world. And, you know, she's come back. with, like, Well, what about this? Shall I study this? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? And, Ryan, that's just me. Classical Greek. Sorry, yes, punny together, Tony. It resulted in the starvation of his family. He was born in Canada and lives in North Carolina with his wife and three kids. They host an ever-changing cast of creatures that include four ferrets, 50 genetic (laughs) snakes of various species, a tarantula, a scorpion, two praying mantises and hundreds of frogs. A lizard, bearded oh wait, now we've got a bearded dragon and a monitor lizard, hundreds of flightless African cockroaches, two rats, hordes of mice, two dogs. He's actually saying, not all at once, but it felt that way. but I haven't gotten this, nowhere near what you've been up to there, but we've kind of been down that road as well. He says he writes speculative fiction in the moments wrestled out of his daily schedule in much the same manner that one might wrestle a bear whose cubs one wishes to make into comfortable slippers. Ryan, honestly. Like I say, Ryan came over there, dropped the story in my lap, and I just loved it. This story is narrated by Veronica Gagier, who is a voiceover artist and author. She is the co-author, voice talent, and producer for the Secret World Chronicle podcast, and she writes and world bills for the comic publisher Incubator Press. She also has an active voice in the HG world in the Diary of Jill Woodbine, And she continues to read for authors in realms of science fiction, fantasy, romance, and horror. (laughs) Veronica says, Rumours exist of an alter ego fueled by caffeine trudging through the mire of higher education administration in the pursuit of letters P, H, and D. Said creature often dabbles in psychology and early adulthood learning strategies, possesses an affinity for comic book and small talking horses, and strives alongside a spouse to raise literally-minded geek children. Can't get better than that. Like I say, I just wanted Veronica's take on this story as well. You know what I mean? Great little bit of, you know, I'll praise myself as well. Great little bit of casting there from the the old fella. I'll put a link on to Veronica's site and to Ryan's site. And I'll put a link over there to Stupefying Stories as well. Do part eight in having a look at that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
3: Return to Earth by R.M. Jones. "'Jesira gazed over the field of broken stone, crouching in the shell of a collapsed building. "'The only noise was the whisper of her breather, filtering the toxic atmosphere. "'Her retinal implants cut through the fog, interpreting wavelengths her natural eyes could never have processed. "'Her enhanced vision marked her destination in red, vibrant against the miserable grays and browns. "'She was heading to a badly damaged building across the old city park.' From orbit, it looked like the remains of a private medical clinic, but the fragmented records preserved from before the fall could not confirm it. That was years ago. In the first weeks after humanity's desperate escape from Earth, this was one of the few buildings targeted and demolished by the machines. Most other buildings were either damaged in the initial fighting or else left empty and intact, but this one was leveled after the war was over. Nobody knew the reason, so Jasira had been sent down to learn what she could. After all, as far as mankind's future was concerned, she was expendable. No movement. Good. Only the charred trunks of fallen trees gave any cover. She would have to move quickly. A machine had passed by here in the last few hours, tread tracks still fresh in the dust of crumbling gray grass. It could still be in the area. She whispered into her comm link, the sound muffled under the breathing apparatus. Nothing out here. I'm going in. She waited for the response from orbit, counting heartbeats 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Static buzzed in her ear. Affirmative. Report when you make contact. Be careful. Jasira closed the connection and lifted her pulse rifle. She stepped forward, feeling the hot air on her face where the breather did not cover it. A branch snapped beneath the black boot of her exosuit. She glanced down. No, not a branch. A pale rib, dry and brittle. A few feet away, half buried in the sterile dust, lay the white dome of a skull. We really screwed this place up. She slipped from tree to tree, crossing the park as her ears strained for the hum of a machine or the creak of a ruined tree trunk crashing to the ground. Her nanocells wordlessly processed chemical aids, boosting her awareness, tuning her reflexes. The ceiling of the building was completely gone. She stepped through a gap in the wall, glass crunched into the dirty carpet beneath her boots. Shattered office equipment was half-buried in the rubble. An overturned shelf still held some charred folders. She poked through them, recording what little text was still legible with her memory implants, parsing the data for a lead. No clues here. She moved deeper into the ruin, careful to stay clear of the sections of ceiling that still sagged. A set of elevator doors and a section of intact wall were slightly open, though no elevator car seemed to remain inside. A flash of light caught her eye. Sticking out of the rubble, a thick cable spat sparks from a frayed end. Part of this building still has power. A backup generator, maybe? Her cochlear implant buzzed with static. Orbit to Jazzy, your heart rate just shot up. Everything okay? Affirmative, just excited. It looks like part of the building is still powered, but there's not much left up here. If there's anything to find, it's going to be below ground. A long pause. Our satellites show no enemy activity near you or the lander. We estimate you have about twenty minutes before the message of your arrival spreads and they begin to converge on you. Expect to lose radio contact once underground. Affirmative. I'll check my watch. Talk to you when I'm back up. Jasira moved to the elevator doors and tried to pull them open, but they did not budge. Maybe part of the mechanism was fused? She subvocalized a command to the nanogland implanted in the base of her skull, felt the surge of power as nanocells throughout her body manufactured stimulants. This time the doors opened with a grinding noise as Jasira strained against them. Doubtless she'd injured herself pushing that hard, but the nanocells would already be at work restoring the damage. The shaft was partly choked with rubble, but not impassable. She climbed down to the basement level and forced those doors open as well. She blinked in the sudden glare of artificial light. The lower level was surprisingly intact. A nurse's desk filled with papers and coffee mugs, a row of chairs and old magazines— For a moment, it seemed as if she had only arrived late for an appointment, and all the terror of the past fifteen years was a dream. No frantic rush to the shuttles and space elevators, coughing blood from the poisoned atmosphere that sterilized and killed. No murder over the reserves of air and food on Luna, as frantic refugees crowded into the domes. No frozen bones bleaching in the dust of Mare Serenitatis. As she stepped forward, the illusion of normalcy was quickly dispelled. A pair of mummified legs and stained scrubs protruded from behind the counter. She stepped over them, not looking down, and moved silently down the hall. She listened for any sound beyond that of her booming heart and the too loud rasp of her breathing apparatus, the tread of a wheel, the hum of a photocell. But the hall was as silent as the landscape above. After several turns and branches of the corridors, Jasira came to a door half ajar. She gently pushed it open the rest of the way with the muzzle of her rifle, looked inside, and froze. A machine hulked in the room beyond, slouched like a drunk against a pile of smashed steel crates. It almost looked like a mass of human, save for the blades and the many eyes. Withered bodies and lab coats were strewn about, most were in pieces. The blades on the machine's arm would have gone through human flesh as if it was made of soft butter. She held still, watching for signs of activity from the razored steel giant, but it did not move. Hardly daring to hope, she edged into the room. It did not twitch. But what had brought it down? In a moment... She had her answer. Crushed beneath the chrome trunk was a white-coated body, holding a wire-sheathed globe. When she gently lifted it from the corpse's hand, it suddenly crackled. The light globe in the ceiling gave a strange buzz and went out. All she could see was the glow of her wrist and the data imposed on her vision by her retinal implants— Before her eyes had a chance to adjust or switch to night vision, the room burst into white light again, sizzling with weird surges of static, green halos of pale fire dancing all around them. Her cochlear implant shrieked painfully and went dead. The text on her retinal display vanished. A moment later the phosphorescent glow faded and the darkness returned with a terrible weight, this time unbroken by any source of light at all. Her calm was inert, her weapon dark, and none of the facility's lights were on. Some sort of localized EMP device or something? Shit. Shit, shit, shit. She forced herself to calm down, slowing her breathing, letting her heart rate drop. It took a very long time without the assistance of her networked nanocells. After what seemed an eternity, the facility lights flickered back on. The status indicators on her pulse rifle reactivated. Her breather continued to supply untainted air. But her nanogland remained inert. The stimulants, the boosted reflexes, the continual repairs to her body, all had been shut down. She felt heavy, sluggish, and blind without the retinal display, as if one of her senses had been removed. "'I'll never get clear of the machines like this,' Maybe it just needs a reboot. This was a clinic. They must have a nanodiagnostic somewhere. The rifle rebooted, after all. The damage can't be too bad. She began to examine the room, struggling to commit each detail to memory, now that her indexed memory implants were no longer recording. One of her feet crunched over broken glass, stirring up a weirdly pungent smell. Biles. Small glass vials were scattered everywhere. Most were broken. Some of the waist-high metal crates were open, with metal trays hanging out, filled with slivers of glass. Their walls were thick, heavily insulated. Probably for transporting something frozen. The glass continued to crunch with each step. Occasionally she had to pick her way over the wreckage of an insulated metal crate— Had the machines attacked the crates, too? If the vials contained some sort of biological weapon, she was already exposed and probably done for. But biological weapons, while effective against humans, were rather less effective on machines. Her fingertips brushed the smooth surface of a warm crate, then the cold, twisted surface of the next. Wait. She stepped back and felt the unbroken surface of the crate. Her probing fingers revealed it was warm on one side with a sort of vent in the surface. The crates. They're freezers. And this one is still running, somehow. Cautiously she opened the freezer. It was filled with racks of icy vials, thousands of them, all intact. She removed one and read the label. Fertilized Human Egg Cell, Patient 40034, Amherst Fertility Clinic. She felt the blood drain from her face. She replaced the vial with trembling fingers and carefully closed the freezer door. Oh my God, please let there be more. Not just this one freezer left. She quickly sifted through the debris, but only this one freezer remained intact, running for years on a dying power cell. This was what the machines had tried to destroy, an entire generation of unborn humans. This was no accident. They had purposefully tried to exterminate the human race, and with so many survivors like Jasira left totally sterilized, it was possible that the machines had succeeded— Certainly those few women still able to bear children were far too important to risk on ground missions. But such women were too few far too few. This freezer held the future of mankind. Jasira struggled to lift the freezer but was barely able to budget. I have to find a nano diagnostic interface. She reluctantly left the treasures of the freezer room and crept through the maze of sagging halls until she located a set of diagnostic monitors and sensor apparatus on a wheeled cart. Nearby lay the still form of a second machine, curled in a fetal position in the thick dust. Jasera raised the pulse rifle and approached, finger feather light on the trigger. When the heavy chrome body did not stir, she turned to the diagnostic interface, letting out a breath of relief as the screen lit. It still had power. Jasira attached the interface electrode to the back of her skull and entered the command to access her implants. Soon, the screen was filled with status readouts. It looked as if some implants were burned out, but as long as the nanogland was okay, it could coordinate repairs. She almost laughed when she saw the query on the monitor's screen. Implanted artificial hive gland deactivated improperly. "'Superficial damage detected, core mechanisms intact. "'Initiate startup and maintenance sequence.' "'She touched. Yes.' "'An instant later, a shock ran through her body, contorting her muscles. "'She could not scream but fell to the floor, her weight jerking the electrode loose. "'Her retinal display came back online. "'Jasera painfully climbed to her feet, leaning on her rifle.' What the hell just happened? She tried to request a status report from the nanogland, but got only a status unavailable message. She scanned through her memory log, verified that the system was again recording what she saw. Her system seemed to be back online, despite the unavailable message. She celebrated by ordering a small hit of sedatives and felt her earlier panic slip away. As she returned to the room with the broken freezers, she coordinated instructions with her nanogland, which appeared to be accepting commands as normal. Her bones had already been reinforced, thanks to the years of ministration from the nanocells, but the bones alone would not be enough to lift the heavy freezer. The nanocells began to spin reinforced nanowire ligaments and to prepare a bolus of stimulants. Her body would be horribly strained by the demands of providing these raw materials so quickly, but she could sort that out later. For the moment, all that mattered was getting the freezer to the lander. The food stores in the lander would feed both her and her nanocells. By the time she reached the intact freezer, she was able to drag it along the floor. By the time she reached the elevator shaft, she was able to push it up the side of the shaft to the ground level. On the surface... It was already dark. Way past twenty minutes. I hope the lander's intact. She tried to hail orbital base, but instead got only a terrible screech in her ears. Suddenly, her retinal display glowed. Sink complete. Instructions updated. Commencing reconstruction. Reconstruction. She'd never seen that message before and was still puzzling over it when the first stab of agony twisted through her body. She queried her diagnostics and in reply got only gibberish characters that whirled past too quickly to read. Gradually it sank in. I just uploaded a virus into my nanogland. A machine virus. Oh my god! The stabs of agony got worse as she struggled to push the freezer to her lander, heaving it over heaps of crumbling brick and contorted beams. Her pulse rifle was clutched in one hand, untested since the EMP. It made pushing the freezer harder, but if a machine came loping towards her, she'd need it just to have a chance. Unless the EMP had screwed it up, then it would probably explode, but that would still be better than getting filleted by those cold gray blades." She felt pangs of terrible hunger, an overwhelming urge to pull off the breather and devour fistfuls of the ash that covered the ground in drifts. Cravings designed to provide the hijacked nanocells with raw material shouted out in the language of her subverted metabolism. Another agonizing screech, and then the voice of the orbital command came through. Heart rate is off the chart, Jazzy, none of your vitals make sense. What the hell is... She tried to gasp out a response, but all the wind was gone from her lungs. "'Converging on your location! Hurry up!' and— The connection went dead, and then was replaced by the constant shriek of binary data. Updated instructions for the nanocells, maybe, or an alarm calling the machines to find her. Whatever it was, she could not get it to switch off. She screamed, but could barely hear her own voice over the cacophony within her skull— Jasira wiped her forehead with the back of her hand. It came away covered in blood and silvery filaments, nanofibers spun to a visible thickness. Each breath stabbed like a knife. The lander is just around the corner. You can make it, girl. It will have something to help me at the base, surely. Something was in her mouth. She lifted her breather and spat a couple of teeth into her hand. No blood. A jab of craving hit her. Without thinking, she popped the teeth back into her mouth and swallowed, then choked down a fistful of sterile soil. Maybe that would keep the nanocells from cannibalizing bone and muscle for raw material for a few minutes longer. Eat that, you traitorous little bastards, and leave me alone! The shriek of static slowly faded, replaced by a humming drone in the back of her skull. Her heart thrashed in her chest, sending pulses through her neck, her wrists, all throughout her body. Something massive crashed through the ruins behind her. Jasira slammed the breather mask back into place, gasping for air, and began to push the crate again. Her joints felt like they were full of grinding sand. She heaved the crate over a low stone wall and crawled after it, wincing as she moved. Her pulse rifle was warm in her hand. None of her readouts were helping her anymore, so she used her own eyes to scan the landing site for hostels. An empty lot, full of dead grass, dominated by one of the huge metallic stromolites built by the machine to change the atmosphere. Jasira had hoped that landing next to one of their poison gas factories would preserve the lander from a long-range bombardment, and the lander was indeed intact, although it would not remain so long. She could hear one of the larger mobile machines approaching over the static in her ears possibly more than one, echoes bounced strangely in this altered atmosphere. From the trembling of the ground, it could be as large as the ones that shot down the shuttles of escaping refugees. The lander's hatch whined as she thumbed the biometric lock. She tried to lay down the pulse rifle, but her numb fingers were too stiff. She looked closer, not stiff tiny filaments had spread from her fingers adhering to the weapon and pulling her silver streaked skin taut against it it was becoming difficult to tell where her hand ended and weapon began it was merging into her body she wretched in horror belly twisted with dry heaves what the hell are they doing to me the pitch of the drone in her ears began to change, as though there were words in it, words that tickled just below the surface of understanding. Jasira awkwardly shoved the crater into the cockpit. With one hand she entered the commands that would return the lander to orbit, ignoring the edged ridges rising from the back of her free hand. She grimly hoisted the freezer into the cargo hold and buckled a harness around it, securing its bulk as well as possible the destruction of even a single one of those vials would be an unrecoverable loss. The tiny ship began to vibrate as the engines powered up. She bent over the console to look out on the city one last time. Two humanoid automata stood at the edge of the open lot. Looming over them was a gigantic machine, its glossy black photoreceptors trained on the lander. Some sort of massive weapon was attached to the thick armor-plated shoulder. Jasira felt heaviness in the pit of her stomach as the weapon lowered, lining up with the lander. She recognized the weapon. Once it built up enough charge, not even the thick armor plating of an orbital cruiser could stop the blast. Her tiny lander would go up like a gnat hit by a flamethrower. She looked back into the cargo hold. Well, my little babies, it looks like we aren't both going to make it back. It's time for me to go. She flipped the autopilot switch and dove out the hatch. The lander's hatch sealed shut, and the little ship vibrated as it prepared to rise on a cushion of force. All three of the machines were focused on the lander. They did not react as she darted across the field of rubble towards them. Jasira raised her rifle arm like a club and smashed one of the smaller ones in the head. All the insectile photocells shattered in one blow, and the metal skull crumpled as if made of tin. She froze a moment in shock. These things had taken direct hits from artillery shells during the fall. She had not expected to do any serious damage to this one by hitting it, only to distract the three of them from the lander. The blinded monster fell backwards, then jacked knife onto its legs and began swinging its blades wildly. The second humanoid one, still active, reached for her. Jasira threw herself back out of its reach, then raised her rifle arm to take aim at the giant. Its weapon was still trained on the lander, tracking as the vehicle rose. The trigger of her own rifle was completely covered by her skin, which gleamed like metal. Her finger was immobilized. She felt a spasm of fury at the useless limb, neither weapon nor hand. Shoot, damn it! The muzzle throbbed, then a blast of searing energy struck the massive barrel of the giant's cannon. The colossus turned, then bent down to assess the new threat the cannon dipped, pointing away from the lander and towards her. Jasira's mouth twisted into a metallic smile. That's right, you bastard. Look down here. Leave my babies alone. Her rifle trembled ominously, heating up, shooting sparks. She could feel the warmth traveling up her metal-laced bones. Give me one more shot, please. Just one more shot. A wall of metal slammed into her, knocking her to the ground. The undamaged humanoid machine had lunged while she was distracted by the giant. Its massive arm blades lifted. She raised her rifle arm. Shoot! Her arm exploded, sending her and the machine flying apart. Her head struck the wall, and silver fluid ran into her eyes. The lantern disappeared into the clouds. Jasira smiled her face covered in dust and silvery ichor. Expendable, because I'm barren. Bastards, I just sent you thousands of babies. She wiped the damp dust from her face. Take care of them. She lifted her remaining hand to shade her eyes, straining to follow the lander's path. Heavy blades weighted the arm, Numbly, she felt huge fingers scoop her up, lift her into the air. Silver streamed from the stump of her arm and the shrapnel holes in her torso. Thin filaments of nanofiber were spreading across the cavities, threading her body back together with cobweb stitches. A globular photoreceptor the size of a beach ball focused on her. The background static, full of whispers and words, finally resolved itself. A voice resonated in her bones. Welcome. As her mind drifted in static haze, she felt motes of light pulsing throughout her body, echoing the throbbing voice in binary harmonies and giving their own responses. The world no longer seemed gray and dark, but was filled with flickering lights. She could sense them, alert and active, spread across the thousands of miles of wilderness, clumped in the atmospheric stromolites, or concentrated in the large machines. Millions of self-aware components, from nanocells trapped in the bones of fallen humans to industrial factory complexes, whispered to one another through the ashes of the earth. The silent ruins were full of voices that she only now could hear. A wave of exhilaration rippled through the sea of lights and through Jasira's nanocells. She fought to clear her mind to focus. Something was happening in the sky. Some part of the machine consciousness was rising, escaping. She turned her head to the clouds where the lander had disappeared and caught a binary echo of joyous anticipation. Sick realization twisted in her ravaged mind. Nanocells in the embryos. Machine-controlled nanocells. She gave a dry, choking laugh, her voice vanishing into the hot wind as it whistled through the ruins and sank into oblivion.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is... Ryan's like I say. Hopefully, I'll get another story by Ryan as well. Just if producing work like that, whoa! Science fiction at its very best from a brand new writer. Veronica, thank you so much. We've got some more stories by Veronica as well coming up as well. And Bruce, thank you for sending over Ryan. Do go over to Stupefying Stories as well and have a look at Bruce Bethke's work there. What he's doing over there. So before we kind of get into cheap skates by Adam as well, just a couple of things there. Big thank you to everyone. When I mentioned last week about the original Starship Sofa shows, you know, and I said, I have lost the And I lost it straight away, to be quite honest as well. I don't know where the dickens it went. I lost the Neil Gaiman. I think it was show one of Neil Gaiman's two-part. I lost that. And I have had loads of emails. Honestly, thank you so much. Just, you know what I mean? But you need a medal for keeping that work anyways on your computers. But I've had loads of people say, oh, Tony, I've got it on hard disk. I'll I'll send you a copy. So now Starship Sovas is complete. The original ones, you know what I mean? So please, if you want to, you know, kind of support the show or anything like that, come over front of the website. There's smack bang in your face there. You'll see, you know, if you want to kind of listen, you know, some fantastic holiday listening to You can get away from this weather in the UK. What a nightmare. So that would be lovely if you kind of, you know, if you did one day, i am like to say now we've got the complete set. And again, a big thank you to everyone that kind of, you know, I honestly thought that was, that was gone and that was, that was it. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, and I've, like I say, that's been lost for years and I've just, why did I just ask? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> just a lot. So um, thank you so much. The other thing that I kind of want to mention is, and it's all dependent on so many things, you know, like we're trying to get these new shows kicking off and running and everything like that. Well, it's planned for the kind of, you know, the the 16th of July to kick off with the Crime City Central one, the 17th of July to go with the Protecting Project Pulp, and then we'll, you know, the normal show runs on the Wednesday. And it's my birthday on the 19th of July. Yeah, it was forty.
4: Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Bloody six, man. Oh, do you know what I mean? When I started this show, I was, just a young, I was, I was still known at work as the youngin. Get the youngin to do it. And did not happen. <laughs> this, this young kids are coming in now, oh, so that's what we're trying to kind of. I'm trying, just juggling so many things. So I will put like the email. We've got the email out there. I'll put the email out. I will kind of mention it on Twitter. You know, come and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You know, that's a great way to kind of keep up to date with anything we're doing. You know, go on there. I use this hootsuite. Hood sweet man, it sounds like it's made by Jorys, doesn't it? Hood sweet, I use that, and you know, I kind of, I put it out a few times a day, kind of what's happening and stuff like that. So come over to Twitter or Facebook, and then you can kind of keep up the date with it and what's happening. What's kind of not what's holding me back is we're waiting for like this fantastic bit of artwork. I've seen the rough rough draft of Ben's work, and that's coming, and that's going to be the kind of on the kind of the central hub. Page, you know, the the District of Wonders, and from there you'll be able to kind of go down the four avenues, for want of a better description, or, you know, like Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the Starship's Over. So we're waiting on that coming as well. But we're also waiting, we've kind of submitted the kind of feeds to the iTunes. And we don't want to kind of make a big song and dance about it Yeah, We're just going to hedge, you know, hedge what kind of bets and, you know, it's coming, it's coming. But we've got to wait for those getting kind of listed in iTunes just because, you know, iTunes is massive. Do you know what I mean? And it kind of just helps so much. Here's the thing while I think on as well. Write as a review on iTunes. That would mean so much to us. I think I mentioned this last week. Write as a review on iTunes. That would just boost up the little sofa there. It would be fantastic. So that's what we're kind of aiming for. Do you know what I mean? This, this kind of week is to kind of go out with that and get that done and hopefully launch on that week. You know, they kind of start on the 16th of July for all them. Like you say, hopefully, I'm going to kind of just scatter a gun. The announcements everywhere. So hopefully, you know, if you're kind of kicking around, you'll hear about it. What also we're kind of doing as well is launched this week as well. Amy H. Sturgis is doing another video online lecture. Amy's doing one on the Hunger Games and science fiction tradition as well. So again, with the, the kind of the video ones, we only have 20 tickets. That's all we kind of... Do with this, the video kind of package that I've got. So, there's only 20 tickets for Amy H. Sturgis' The Hunger Games lectures, like a live video lecture. We're planning that for the 1st of September. So, if you go over again, the front of the website there on Starship Sova, there'll be a little kind of you know countdown button there, and you can click from there and go over and buy it on Eventbrite. The ticket there you go, tickets are 20 pounds for that. Like I said, 20 tickets, and that's it, it's gone. And if anyone, you know was there last time with Amy H. Sturgis when she gave a little lecture on Sherlock Holmes. It was just lovely, to be quite honest. It was just fascinating how deep Amy can kind of go into this kind of subject that she chooses. You know, I mean, Professor Amy H. Sturgis, do you know what I mean? You, you're getting your money's worth, man. So let's kick on then, and I'll keep on harping out about everything, you know what I mean? But let's kick on with it is Cheapskates, and it is Adam. Adam, and I ain't going to say your surname. Sorry, lad.
0: Greetings to my fellow Coach Class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Well, everyone, I know that I promised you Star Wars last month, but you're going to have to wait a month because something has happened. That something, put simply, is that Ray Bradbury died. For those of you taking up residence under rocks lately, Bradley was the author of such great works as Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man, Dandelion Wine, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. He just happened to be one of the greatest writers of our time. When I heard the news, I knew that I needed to honor him in some way with my own small segment here on the sofa, so I changed my plans. The trick, though, I quickly discovered is just how I could possibly honor the man, given the premise of my segment, that I review, number one, free content available, number two, on electronic devices, ebook readers, and digital audiobook players. The problem with the first criteria, free content, is that Bradbury is decades from having work in the public domain, which is the cheapskate's bread and butter. And he never really used free content as any sort of marketing tool. Ray may be gone, but his creative legacy, wrapped up in hundreds of short stories, about 50 books and a trove of poems, essays, plays, and even operas, is going to yield profits for a long time coming. In fact, he currently has out a new paperback, two new hardbacks, and another new hardback coming soon to stores. Don't get me wrong, there's no good reason a cheapskate shouldn't enjoy Bradbury. You can pick up an old paperback of most of his works online for just a penny plus shipping, and it's a pathetic library indeed that doesn't have at least a few of his works available to borrow. But it's not... free. Then there's a second premise, that the content I review here is available in electronic format, Ol' Ray seemed to have a bit of a technophobia streak, especially in his later days. Actually, phobia's the wrong suffix, as he didn't seem to actually fear it. He just hated a lot of it. A misotech, perhaps? And while I don't want to judge a man's entire life by his bugaboos late in life, his thoughts on technology seem pretty heated and deep-seated. Take, for example, this quote from the Los Angeles Times in 2010. We have too many cell phones. We've got too many intranets. We have to get rid of those machines. We have too many machines now. Yeah, okay, but surely he's all right with a device that's created purely for reading, right? Uh, not so much. Quoting here from the same article. I was approached three times during the last year by internet companies wanting to put my books on an electronic reading device. I said to Yahoo, prick up your ears and go to hell. Sorry, Ray, I I, I really think you'd like e-readers if you gave it a shot. Uh, so, Ray, what, why picking on Yahoo anyway? You know, they don't have much to do with e-books, so... Um, so, hey, it, did you know I can get Fahrenheit 451 on Kindle here now? So so you weren't completely against it forever, but, uh... Okay, yeah, still not a big fan. Okay, yeah, I, I can respect that. You did write all those great books, so I'll, uh... Yeah, no, it it's cool. Just a little help here would be nice. Okay, sorry for that, Ray. Anyway, to make a short story long, I don't have a free Ray Bradbury story to review for you today. But I just might have something better. While he may not have been a fan of technology and e-readers, he was a fan of education, especially the kind you pursue independently, seeking your own passion. Quoting, I spent three days a week for ten years educating myself in the public library and it's better than college. People should educate themselves. You can get a complete education for no money. At the end of ten years, I had read every book in the library, and I'd written a thousand stories. Complete education. No money. Now we're talking. So, my free Ray Bradbury content recommendation is a free college-level online course from a site called Coursera.org, that's C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A This site offers free online classes in a variety of disciplines, including mathematics, world history, and human-computer interaction, taught by professors at Princeton, Stanford, University of Michigan, and the University of Pennsylvania. In each course, you take classes in interactive online lectures and forums. I haven't taken a class yet, but from what I understand, it takes advantage of social interaction by allowing the best questions to rise to the top by letting people vote on them and using fellow students to help grade and give feedback on papers. You don't get any actual college credit. But you do get self-improvement and a certificate of completion to use on resumes and such. The class Cheapskates will want to take first is Fantasy and Science Fiction, The Human Mind, Our Modern World, taught by Eric S. Rabkin of the University of Michigan, who won the Science Fiction Research Association's Pilgrim Award for lifetime contributions to science fiction criticism. The course lasts ten weeks and tackles a different subject every week, starting with Grimm's Fairy Tales and Lewis Carroll, and moving on to Bram Stoker, Mary Shelley, and Edgar Allan Poe, before ending with more modern science fiction authors, such as Cory Doctorow with Little Brother, Ursula K. Le Guin with The Left Hand of Darkness, and, you guessed it, Ray Bradbury with The Martian Chronicles. The great thing here for cheapskates is that all but two of the works on the reading list, Bradbury and Le Guin, are available for free download. The next session starts July 23rd, and I'm going to give it a try and see how it goes. Go sign up. Maybe I'll run into you in class. As for my actual book review, I wanted to make another selection off the course list to read and review for you here today. Just before Bradbury on the reading list, The natural one to choose would, of course, be A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. As you heard here on the sofa a few weeks ago, in Tony's interview with Ray, Burroughs was a huge influence on Bradbury. Well, here. I'll let Ray describe it himself in this introduction to a 1977 audio series of Bradbury reading short stories and selections from The Martian Chronicles and The Illustrated Man.
4: A lot of my friends, a lot of strangers over a period of years, have asked me, where did the Martian Chronicles come from? That's a hard question to, to answer, because it goes way back in my life. I think when I was around 10 years old, I fell in love with Edgar Rice Burroughs and his John Carter stories about the planet Mars. I used to go out on the lawn on summer nights and look at Mars hanging in the sky and lift up my hands and, and stretch them out toward Mars and say, Mars, take me home. So I was really a child of Edgar Rice Burroughs. I think a lot of people have been in love with him. I've talked to a lot of biochemists and scientists on many levels, astronomers from all over the world. At one time or another, when they were 10 or 11 years old, John Carter and Mars called to them. So I think in many ways, space travel has depended upon people like Burroughs and Wells and Jules Verne over a period of years to get us onto the moon and off to Mars. As I grew older, I grew into other modes of reading, fell in love with a lot of other authors, but I came back to Mars again and again in my life. And as we began to approach space through our technologies, back about 30 years ago, I began to write a series of short stories. I didn't really know I was writing a novel. I think that's the best way to write at times. You, you have feelings, you have inclinations, you have passions. And along the way, I read a remarkable book, Winesburg, Ohio, by Sherwood Anderson. And when I finished the book, which was a series of sketches and stories about people in a small town, I said to myself, I would like to do something like that, laid on the planet Mars, though, Let's do something for Mars that moves slightly in the direction of the sort of thing Sherwood Anderson did for us in Winesburg, Ohio. Well, I forgot all about that. That was back in 1944. And several years went by, and I was living in Venice, California. And it, toward the end of 1945 or 46, I began to write these short stories, just one at a time, and little, little sketches about the planet Mars and the first landings. And in 1950, I uh, published the Martian Chronicles. The year before, I'd gone off to New York City on the Greyhound bus. I was a very poor young writer at the time. With all my short stories in a big box, took them around to various publishers. And the publishers said, well, we don't publish short stories. Don't you have a novel? And no, I didn't have a novel. I was never a novelist. I went back to the YMCA that night, and I started going over all the stories, sitting there on a warm spring night. And I looked at all the Martian stories I'd brought with me, and I began to sew them together in my mind. I sat down at my typewriter, and by 2 in the morning, I'd made an outline called The Martian Chronicles. Here I had a novel right in front of me and didn't know it. Took it to Doubleday the next day, and they said, yes, by gosh, that's it, we'll buy it. So I took the Greyhound bus back to Los Angeles, uh, having made my first big sale for $500 of the Martian Chronicles. And it was published the next year in the spring of 1950. I didn't know what I had, of course. I, uh, I think most of us are pretty naive about our own writing. I didn't realize that I had written something that was going to be around for a long time in my life. Uh, the first year it came out, of course, it sold very few copies, maybe 7,000 copies. And uh, then very slowly, over a period of time, uh, people began to pay attention to it. And then, of course, the greatest favor of all came to me during the last year, when suddenly we actually land on Mars. And uh, back in July, uh, a year ago, I... Uh, in 1976, I was present at the Jet Propulsion Laboratories on the morning at 5.30 a.m. when we landed on Mars with our photographic equipment. And I was interviewed by Roy Neal on the Today Show. And he said to me, well, how does it feel uh, to be here, and to see the landing, to see the first photographs coming back, and to see that Mars is empty, there's nothing there? What is your reaction to all this, having been a former inhabitant of mars and i said oh i'm i'm very excited because there is life on mars he said what do you mean i said well there's life on mars it's us we're there extensions of our own sensibilities are there and from now on we are the martians we are the new generation of martians that's the important thing not whether there's anything there waiting for us but we we'll have put ourselves there and we'll soon be landing there in person we'll be colonizing there will be moving on out to Alpha Centauri sometime in the next 100 years. So that's exciting to me. As this suggests, really, I should just have you go back and listen to that
0: review of A Princess of Mars. So if you want to consider cheapskates in Starship Sofa number 230 as part of my tribute, please do so. It really should be. But I also want to give you something new. So I decided I would go back and review that other great science fiction author so intrigued with Mars, that if you were listening closely, you may have just heard Bradbury mention. That is H.G. Wells, the author of the famous The War of the Worlds. I was a bit surprised to find War of the Worlds absent from this list, given the subject matter of much of the rest of the course, but a short story included in the required reading H.G. Wells' The Star will do just fine. After all, as you heard, the Martian Chronicles is essentially a series of short stories about the first explorers, settlers, and eventually refugees to Mars, loosely connected together. A book of short stories seems actually more appropriate than a novel. One free ebook anthology of Wells' short stories that contains The Star is Tales of Space and Time published in 1900, and available for free on Project Gutenberg. You can also get volunteer-read audiobooks of The Star and a few others of the stories in Tales of Space and Time on LibriVox.com. I'll provide links on my blog site, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. The collection as a whole in Tales of Space and Time boasts beautiful if occasionally archaic and complex, use of language, and the strength of Well's imagination and his influence on the genre can be plainly seen. As for the star, it's a surprisingly engaging, if short, read. The basic premise is that a previously unidentified planetary mass on an erratic orbit collides with Neptune, sending both fiery spheres hurtling toward Earth. As the apparently new star grows in the sky, the viewpoint jumps from person to person. That's a bit distracting, but typical Wells. Then, at last, a mathematician finally runs the numbers. It's not good. A near miss at best, a direct hit at worst. The mathematician confronts the specter at his window as it grows in the sky. Quoting, "'You may kill me,' he said after a silence." "'but I can hold you, and all the universe for that matter, "'in the grip of this little brain. "'I would not change, even now.'" The next day, he stands in front of his class in the most dramatic scene of the story. "'Circumstances have arisen. "'Circumstances beyond my control,' he said and paused, "'which will debar me from completing the course I had designed. "'It would seem, gentlemen,' if I may put the thing clearly and briefly, that man has lived in vain. The students glanced at one another. Had they heard aright? Mad? Raised eyebrows and grinning lips there were, but one or two faces remained intent upon his calm, gray-fringed face. "'It will be interesting,' he was saying, "'to devote this morning to an exposition, "'so far as I can make it clear to you, of the calculations.' Let us assume he turned towards the blackboard, meditating a diagram in the way that was usual to him. What was that about lived in vain? whispered one student to another. Listen, said the other, nodding towards the lecturer. And presently, they began to understand. The rest of the story is death and destruction, with an ending bringing in the Martians for a cameo and a bit of perspective. The star is a forerunner of basically any of the -the earth-destroyed-by-blunt-objects-from-the-sky subgenre of science fiction, like the movies Armageddon or Deep Impact, although I prefer this story to those flimsy blockbuster films any day. On to the other stories in the collection, we have The Crystal Egg, after some initial confusion about whose perspective the story is actually following, we finally settle on watching the owner of a curio shop who possesses, among his other treasures, an ordinary-looking crystal egg. When someone offers to buy it, he jacks up the price to a whole five pounds, then wheedles about another potential buyer who had been there this morning, he says. All most suspicious and his wife and stepchildren are furious when the egg is, quote, lost, and their plans for the five pounds vanish. The shop owner has actually secreted it away to an acquaintance for safekeeping, and we at last get to learn of the egg's curious properties. When viewed at the right angle, one can peer into a world of flying creatures and lofty cities, a world which they eventually determine is, you guessed it, Mars. The setup and intrigue of the story promises much, but, at least from the perspective of a modern reader, delivers little. I think the story comes from a day when an interesting concept or image could carry the entire weight of a story. Picky readers today, well, okay, me at least, want to know what happens. The next two stories are connected, A Tale of the Stone Age and a tale of things to come. They are also the longest in the book, and probably the ones in this collection you can feel the least guilty about skipping. That's not to say by any means that they're not quite good. Well's language is deep and rich, and at his worst, he's still orders of magnitude above me at my absolute best. It's just that for the payoff, you put in a disproportionate amount of time. There's better wells to be reading. Still, we forge ahead. A tale of the Stone Age takes place in the land corresponding to ancient England, of 50,000 years ago. It relates the tale of the elder tribe leader Uya, the young upstart Uglomi, and their mutual love interest, Udina. During the course of the story, Uglomi and Udina escape from the rest of the tribe and fight a cave bear with their budding human ingenuity. Uglomi invents the first stone hand axe and is the first human to ride a horse. Yep, same guy. Armed with his new weapon, Uglomi returns to the tribe and dispatches Uya. after which they are hunted by the tribe in true Lord of the Flies fashion. Eudina is captured, offered as a human sacrifice to a lion, rescued by Uglomi. And so on. In the end, Uglomi is triumphant, becomes a tribe leader, and they live happily ever after, Wells suggests, or at least until the next upstart comes along. I have to admit, I'm not a fan of this style of science fiction, where the science is purely prehistoric anthropology. My experience with these stories is similar to watching the actors in a horror movie, I want to shout at the screen, give them direction, say, Hey, why don't you make that stone pointy already? It is for this same reason that, to my great shame, I still have been unable to get past the first few chapters of 2001 a Space Odyssey. You can only deal with primates on the verge of turning into something more, gesticulating at each other for so long. I know it reveals a certain egoism in modern man, and probably tells a great deal about me. Still, I lose interest in this subgenre quickly. I'm too disconnected by time, and I don't feel the tension, knowing that regardless of what happens to the characters in the story, it all seems to come out in the wash in the long run. The second tale is a bit more up my alley. A tale of things to come, and it makes a story of ancient times more interesting in Counterpoint. This tale takes place in the same physical location as A Tale of the Stone Age, but 200 years into Wells' future, and 88 years into ours, in the year 2100. I think I've always had a soft spot for writers who have the chutzpah to lay out their visions of the future, knowing full well that that future will be reached, and the inevitable comparisons made. In this case, Wells makes some intriguing, oddly close predictions— Air flight is nearly correct. The decline of the written word Wells depicts seems to be moving on a pace, and the multifunction phonograph described sounds oddly like a modern smartphone or high-end digital music player, even if it is the size of a Dutch clock. Other predictions seem to be correct in vector, if not in degree. Wells correctly recognizes the migration into cities, but not to the same level. England, for example, is down to a mere 4 supermetropolises, And then there's my favorite predictions, the downright silly, most of which are in the area of fashion, which, when you come to think of it, is already pretty silly anyway. In this story, Wells has foreseen air-inflated clothing allowing for instant changes in body physique, a penchant for surgical removal of all body hair, and headgear, shaped like a coxcomb, suctioned to people's bald heads, and filled with hydrogen. This last one had me laughing aloud and thinking of exploding roosters. Think about it. You'd be walking around with a mini Hindenburg on your head. Although, given that the Hindenburg was still 37 years into the future uh, from Wells, it might not have seemed such a bad idea at the time. The plot, however, is purposely parallel to the story of man's ancient ancestors. Here, our hero is a young man of little means named Denton, who is in love with a genteel woman named Elizabeth. That's Elizabeth spelled with a theta at the end. As in A Tale of the Stone Age, their romance is also threatened by the elders. In Elizabeth's father Morris, spelled M-W-R-E-S, ...and Bindon, to whom Morris wants to betroth Elizabeth. Their trials are decidedly more science fiction, however. In the first section, Morris tries to hypnotize Elizabeth out of her love for Denton... ...in a way reminiscent of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. They then try to escape their own tribe in the opposite direction of Uglomi and Eudena... ...rather than moving toward greater civilization... I use that word in quotes, they go from the city into the now-abandoned countryside, which they're not able to sustain for more than a few days. Returning to the city and living off of debt, they're soon degraded to the lowest rung of their society, the labor serfs, who complete undesirable jobs for room and board and a pittance of allowance. Conditions are awful, and Denton in particular discovers that even Future Man is just a few paychecks away from being reduced to scrapping and fighting for survival. I would have liked a different ending, its du sex machina in the extreme, but I found these two stories together to be more than the sum of their parts. Wells seems to be communicating that, underneath the surface, the basic condition of humanity remains the same. Also that even though each person is a blip in the larger scheme, and humanity itself is a blink in the cosmos, yet it all somehow still matters and has purpose. The final short story is The Man Who Could Work Miracles. It's a quick, entertaining romp and is my favorite of the collection. It concerns a store clerk named George McWordier Fortheringay, who, while attempting to make a strong argument that miracles cannot exist, manages to create an impossible miracle. He then continues to perform miracles, small and large, as the story progresses. Think Bruce Almighty, with better intentions and worse results. For example, he inadvertently sends a constable to San Francisco by way of Hades. And then he... But, well... That would give it away, wouldn't it? I'll just leave off the book saying that the ending has an interesting paradox I found particularly delicious. See if you can spot it, too. This collection ends the way I think life should close. With a smile. A final note on Tales of Space and Time. From promotional wording at the end of the book, it's obvious that A Tale of Things to Come is the basis for Wells' full novel, the sleeper awakes and that this slim volume of short stories was used to promote the longer work i'd like to suggest that this small anthology filled the same role then as free short ebooks made available today for the purpose of selling a longer work it's the cheap bait used to land a larger purpose interesting how that strategy has remained essentially the same before i leave you i want to end out where i started this episode by honoring Ray Bradbury. I'm going to let him have the closing thought here, also from the 1977 recordings. He's talking specifically about the Martian Chronicles, but I think it's a greater observation on humanity and its future in the cosmos.
4: As it is, I have total respect for the young person that I was who wrote this book. And when I came to the reading of the final chapter, I was touched by the Feeling that I put in it for these people and for their hope in the face of annihilation to exist in the universe and eventually to move on out to the stars. That message has remained constant with me. I believe in space travel. I believe in mankind's role in the universe. I believe that we will survive. I believe that we will someday live out among the stars and live forever. This is Ray Bradbury.
0: Thank you, Mr. Bradbury. May your stories live forever. That's all today for Cheapskates. This is Adam reminding you, if I may depart from my usual outro here, to be rich to each other.
2: There you go. Adam, thank you so much. So that is show 246. Like I say, lots of things happening, you know, pointing in the right direction. Do look out for the, you know, fingers crossed the launch goes ahead with our new shows, you know, and like I say, District of Wonders, the new kind of network that's here. Starships, Rover, Tales of Terror 5, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp is kind of from. And have you noticed, I can kind of, I can get it right there now, the words Protecting Project Pulp. And the funny thing was, i got Dave, the host, Dave Robinson, the host of Protecting Project Pulp, to kind of, you know, give a little voiceover, like promo. He got the name wrong <laughs> this time he did it. You know what I mean? was like, hmm, is this the right name? No. So, yes, look out for that, you know. Pop over, like you say, if you want to kind of support the Starship over, fantastic. Donations are all you know. Subscribe monthly would be amazing. Do you know what I mean? If you want, come along to the kind of lecture with Amy as well, or participate in the kind of originals. You know, if you want to get the originals. you holiday listening, a reference. You know, there is so many writers there we kind of hit. I'm so kind of proud of them. You know. So listen up next week and see if we've you know if things happen. I will be in touch. Until then, just like to you. good night from me.
4: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely
1: compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of ...so far. A ventilation procedure initiated
3: Shuttle set for us.
1: Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, (laughs) 1...